Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girlbomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your two senseis of scintilla, scintilla, whatever. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. That's a good one. You're really, you're really pulling these out. I was worried. You seem to be running low on uh, Yeah, I got a, a second win. I'm just, I'm going to get a second win. I'm just, I'm pounding the damn boards up here. I'm covered in flop sweat. <laughs> Jordan, today we are going to be talking about the one and only bigger than life legend, Bruce you're gonna have to do so many beeps in this because i just get so excited talking about bruce lee as i think you have mentioned more than i have on the course of this show i was a martial arts dork as a kid i was bitten by the bug with my first episode of power rangers and was quickly enrolled at a local taekwondo studio and from there spent probably three to five years just spending my weekly family movie night slot on martial arts movies made my family just watch jean-claude van damme jackie chan especially i love jackie so much and bruce lee jackie chan i think is on a short list of the greatest living entertainers in the world i have a real love for some of the jcvd stuff that's just clownish and ridiculous but still sweet and you know bruce man like a warrior poet just the closest (laughs) thing we had to like a he's like if michelangelo could kill you with your bare hands just like a (laughs) tremendously intelligent polymath who happened to be one of the greatest living martial artists we won't be talking about steven seagal though all of you should do a quick google of his blues guitar because it's very funny uh jordan we learned in the league of their own episode that you are a baseball guy in your youth but tell me did you have a martial arts moment as a wean uh, not really. I, I Probably the most heteronormative thing that I've ever done was get into Power Rangers for a few months in 1995. And this was a very brief period, but it was during Halloween. So somewhere out there, there are photos of me dressed as the Red Ranger. Uh, but then just as quickly as this fixation came, I kind of got over it. And that's kind of all I got. I can't really bluff this one. I don't really have any background in the martial arts or know anything about the movies associated with it. But I am really interested in Bruce Lee just as a historical figure. I mean, for me, he's like Muhammad Ali, just so endlessly fascinating, even if I know very little about the finer points of their sport. I mean, just you said warrior poet. His quotes alone are just so intriguing. You know, I I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. And, you know, of course, there's the great iconoclastic credo. I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations and you're not in this world to live up to mine. I mean, the man was a quote machine. And just, he's so much more than a fighter. You're absolutely right. And we'll touch on this in the episode, but there was this time in his life when he was recovering from a back injury and he wrote 
a philosophy book, basically. It was published mm-hmm. after his death. And he just to hear his thoughts on things. It's so fascinating. There's this amazing ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that came out in 2020 called Be Water, which takes its title from his famous um, you know, philosophy about how to fight. Basically, basically, well, I mean, not even just fighting, how to just live, really, yeah, be, how to move adapt. through the world, yeah, yeah, how to go with the flow. Uh, and there's also 2012's I Am Bruce Lee, which uh, features Ed O'Neill of Married with Children fame. <laughs> I was shocked to discover that Ed Bundy actually has a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, That's sick. I have a question for you Does one have a black belt or is one a black belt? I never understood. Uh, much like Schrodinger's cat, it's both at the same time. Okay. You live in a constant state of uh, superimposition Super between okay. having and being. Okay. Go but, on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, as befits my sort of ghoulish tendencies, which I really haven't displayed very much on this show, but I'm sure they'll come out. You're coming out. Dribs and drabs. Yeah. Um, aside from Bruce Lee's incredibly graceful athleticism, I'm also drawn to him due to the murky circumstances of his death with all the rumors of him being killed by, you know, the triad gang and all, all sorts of other theories. So that's interesting to me too. I know we'll probably get into that in this episode too. Oh, we will ever. Lee's second film, Fist of Fury, 50 years old this year. And I mean, obviously End of the Dragon is the bigger one in the popular consciousness, but this film is really interesting as a, a waypoint in his career for reasons we'll get into later. And, you know, I couldn't wait until 2023 to talk about Bruce. So, from his apparent insistence on fighting anyone, anywhere, at any time, at the drop of a hat, to the fact that this movie made Chairman Mao cry, to the fact that it was dubbed into an Australian indigenous dialect just this last year, here's everything that you didn't know about Fist of Fury. Bruce Lee was born the son of Grace Ho and Lee Hoi Chuan, a Cantonese opera star based in Hong Kong. Although Bruce was born in San Francisco in 1940 while his parents were visiting the city for a concert tour by his dad. (laughs) Fun fact, the family's youngest son, Robert Lee, would follow in his dad's footsteps, making a living with his voice, not his fists. Uh, He got famous in Hong Kong during the 1960s as the lead singer and founder of a band, The Thunderbirds. Um, so between his dad's celebrity and the fact that Grace's family were one of the wealthiest and most powerful clans in Hong Kong at the time, Bruce had a relatively comfortable childhood growing up, notwithstanding the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong, which we will also get to later. He was born in 1940, which, according to the Chinese Zodiac, is the year of the dragon. And he was also born in the hour of the dragon, which is, uh, according to my research, between seven and nine in the morning, which I know is two hours. And this is seen as extremely good luck to be born in both the year and the hour of the dragon. And people who are so blessed are uh, supposed to be able to overcome any obstacle, which uh, Bruce demonstrated again and again on film. He was nicknamed the little dragon as a boy. Yeah, uh, there's a pretty good biopic of him from 1994 called Dragon. The Bruce Lee Story, which was written and directed by Rob Cohen, who is the auteur behind Fast and the Furious and Triple X, has a really fascinating aspect of his early life. For the first two years of Bruce's life, his parents had dressed him and passed him off as a girl to protect him from this Chinese superstition that uh, demons target the firstborn son in any family. But that is interesting because her first child was a boy who was stillborn. Uh, which I guess she attributed to these spirits. So hence why she wanted to protect Bruce. So, I mean, in a way, that horrible prophecy came true. So in the movie, Cohen literalizes this with a recurring dream sequence in uh, which Bruce fights a giant samurai demon uh, that he eventually chokes to death with a pair of nunchucks. It rules, and I (laughs) cannot stress that enough. So anyway, when Cohen met Bruce's widow, Linda Lee Codwell, after he had given her the screenplay, she asks him, how did you know about Bruce's demon? Which is a weird thing to ask. Um... Those two had such a pure relationship. Uh, They were married in secret in August of 1964 because this horrifying hellhole of a country still had anti-miscegenation laws on the books. And her dad was a very strict Southern Baptist, I believe. And uh, I guess was very against their union. But he eventually came around because he's Bruce Lee. Your son-in-law 
is Bruce, Bruce Lee. How cool is that? Lee. Yeah. Uh, so Cohen explains to her, oh, this is just a thing I did for the movie. This is a dramatic device. And she tells him. This is the demon. The- yeah, the giant samurai demon played by Sven Olthorsen. And so she's like, oh, well, Bruce told me the first time he collapsed 10 weeks before his actual death, he felt like he was being stalked by a demon that was trying to pull him away. Wow. Uh, so that is spooky. Yes. We should probably touch a little more on his actual death. Um, yeah. Because it's shrouded in, in so <laughs> much mystery. I mean, it's just so strange to me that this incredibly physically fit person died at age, what, 32? 32. 32. Cerebral edema, right? Yes. And, I mean, there's a whole bunch of theories as to why this happened. I mean, there's one that says that he just had an allergic reaction to... Basically like an aspirin, some, yeah, some really standard run-of-the-mill over-the-counter medication. Another said that it might have been something to do with heat exhaustion, because I guess the first time he collapsed, he was in a small room on a really hot day doing voiceovers, and he turned the AC off so that it wouldn't affect the sound quality from his recording, which coincidentally is exactly what I'm doing right now, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm terrified. And so there's theories that heat stroke had something to do with his death, but there are also all these theories that his death was something a little more sinister. We mentioned the the theories about gang killings at the top of the episode. Uh, Bruce supposedly made a lot of enemies during his life by teaching Kung Fu to Westerners, and traditionally it was supposed to be only taught to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so there's this theory that he was killed sort of for revenge for betraying the secrets of this martial art. Yeah, there's a there's this other bit of oral legend lore, if you want to call it that, about this technique called the dimak or the death touch, which is also in Bloodsport and Kill Bill Part Two. You know, when she kills David Carradine at the end, the five point palm heart exploding technique. The dimak is this uh, legend, martial arts legend, where if you hit people in a certain order at these pressure points on their body. They will walk away fine, but within a certain amount of time, they will die spontaneously. And and in Kill Bill, it's five steps. And the theory, the supposed theory behind the Bruce Lee thing is that at one point, somebody did this to him, unbeknownst to him. Because in, in real life, it can sometimes be days and weeks later, right? In real, I don't know if this is an actual well, thing, okay, but right. this is the legend. I It's cool. Um, So Bruce's early martial arts training feeds into what he would call Jeet Kune Do. Which translates roughly to the way of intercepting fist, which rules. Yeah, it's a um, it's less of a system than a, an approach. It's basically like, hey, you know, if you're a fighter or you're a martial artist or really if you're any kind of artist, you should not feel constrained by borders. You should take whatever elements of any other system that you like and incorporate it into your own thing. And this has been thought of as basically a precursor to modern MMA, just combining striking and grappling and all of these disparate forms into one system. And it's interesting that he basically got that because as a kid, as this child actor, he was trained in all kinds of stuff. He was trained in uh, Wing Chun under the founder of the modern system of that style, a guy named Ip Man. Uh, tai Chi, boxing, you know, he was a dancer. And he also was just constantly getting in street fights in Hong Kong, fighting with other martial artists, other students, American sailors. And he whipped so much ass... <laughs> That he was not doing well in school and his family was basically like, I think the the two stories that I've heard is that he really injured a kid. And the other one was that he may have beat up somebody who was tied to the triads, which were the organized crime in Hong Kong. And he was not doing well in school and he had this dual citizenship because he was born in San Francisco and his family were like, we are getting you out of the country. <laughs> he apparently had this fighter's instinct in him from a young age. I read that he pulled a knife on a gym teacher in school. <laughs> Who among us? Right, <laughs> yes. Um, but the secondary aim of his relocation to the United States in 1959 was to claim his U.S. citizenship that he was entitled to because he was born in San Francisco. And I guess you have to get that all wrapped up and get all the paperwork submitted before you're 18 in order to do that. It's interesting that the name that he went by as a boy was Lee Jun Fan, which translates roughly to to return and prosper. And hmm. some say that his mother hoped for him to return to the U.S. and become successful. Uh One of my favorite facts about Bruce Lee is that his early job in the United States was as a ballroom dance instructor. Hell yeah. Yeah. I guess he traded martial arts lessons for dance lessons when he was living in Hong Kong and even won the Crown Colony Cha-Cha Championship. 
And I guess there's like pictures of him in like a button down shirt and a bow tie with like a pompadour holding this like, you know, trophy. It's so great. And if you visit the Hong Kong Heritage Museum, you'll find among Lee's featured possessions, a notebook containing over a hundred cha-cha steps. Hmm. So great. Um, But Bruce's relationship to the United States is so fascinating to me. Did you know he was apparently circumcised at age 22 to seem more American? I sure didn't. (laughs) This is per the book Bruce Lee, A Life by Matthew Pauly. I guess when his brother Robert, the aforementioned singer, asked Bruce, hey, why'd you do that? Bruce replied, (laughs) it's what they do in America. I'm American. I want to look the part. Good Lord. Really went for it. Yeah. So we mentioned Bruce was a a hoofer, a real Broadway (laughs) Danny Rose kind of guy. And this was largely because of his dad. He was a child. He was like Jackie Coogan. He was a child star in Hong Kong. His first role was as a literal baby. Carried on stage in the film Golden Gate Girl in 1941. His first leading role alongside his dad nine years later in a movie called The Kid. By the time he was 18, he'd been in 20 films. This media training, I guess you could call it, really gave him that sense of poise and presence that is just so central to his iconography you know just i remember seeing an interview where he was talking about steve mcqueen and he Mm. talks about you know steve mcqueen had that thing where you just walk into a room and turn it on and it was just like light would bend around him and you know bruce has that in the movies man like he just they just do all those snap zooms to him on like uh when he walks in the door of the dojo or whatever and it's just like yep this man is about to destroy the entire room with his presence alone (laughs) um yeah great Another fact about Bruce Lee that just absolutely blows my mind. I mean, he's one of the most athletic, physically perfect human beings of all time. Right. Um, not good enough for the United States military. He failed <laughs> his draft physical. The Army classified him 4F due to some combination, I've seen a bunch of reasons cited, of an undescended testicle, poor eyesight, a sinus disorder, and one leg being longer than the other. Presumably his kicking leg. Yeah. That's my strong leg. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, to which I say, the army's loss. Yeah, right. Man, I sorted out Saigon in six months. <laughs> I uh, learned way more about Bruce Lee's junk in this episode than I thought I was going to be. Oh, yeah, there you go. I'm glad, yeah. glad I could teach you something. <laughs> I know, you were the Bruce Lee expert. I'm really glad I was able to teach you this. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, And then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com So in 1964, Lee had lived in Washington State before settling in Oakland. He has a tremendous tie to Oakland and San Francisco. He had a long-running martial arts school in Oakland. 1964, one of the big defining moments of his life occurs. Ed Parker, who is the founder of the American Kenpo Karate System, and yes, must be said, Elvis Presley's karate teacher. Yes. Invites him to something called the Long Beach Karate Championships. 1964 international karate championships and it is at this event that some of the modern building blocks of his myth are seen by in the public two finger push-ups and the famous one inch punch the former is self-explanatory but the latter is crazy you know you have seen this on screen in kill bill part two this is the move that beatrice uma thurman's character learns from paime that she uses to pound her way out of the coffin that she's buried into that awesome Ennio Morricone score. You basically extend your fingertips and put your middle finger, your longest finger, at whatever you're trying to hit. And then without retracting your arm for the punch, you push forward, you throw a punch. It looks like the Doctor Strange thing <laughs> where he astrally punches the guy's soul out of his body when Lee does this. The, I don't think the 64 one is filmed, but in 1967 it is. And he does this and it just, the guy it looks is supernatural. Yeah, he's just like sent sprawling backwards. I read he he flew back sixteen feet. Is the figure that I read? I mean, it's just, just and again, I mean, the thing that's amazing about this is that his arm is not drawn back. Yeah. It's forward an inch, an inch and a half, maybe two at most. There's it's no, so great. there's no wind up. It's just yeah. pure muscular force. That 1967 footage is incredible. It's yeah. some of the only footage that you can see of him sparring in a non-choreographed setting. First of all, he does a thing where he's blindfolded and fighting a guy, which is just doing the Wing Chun uh, how do you style. Do, how does one do that? I don't understand. Wing Chun is actually really interesting. It was invented, they think it was invented for women as a form of self-defense. Um, and so consequently, a lot of it is not really based on like these big demonstrative kicks or throws. It's all very close quarters. And they do this. There's a system or practice in there called sticky hands where you're keeping your wrists and hands in contact with the person that you're sparring with. And you're supposed to be able to counter and attack and anticipate all of their moves with just that physical contact. But there's a point which he's doing this with this guy where all of a sudden he just sweeps this dude's leg and it's just like how did you have the kinesthetic awareness to do that then then when he's sparring this other guy it literally looks like the other man is running at half speed like he is just <laughs> so ungodly fast there's another part where he, he's standing like three feet away from a guy and throws a front hand or like back fist and the dude goes to parry it like a full half second too late and just bursts out laughing like well that dude's in another universe for me Anyway, so in the audience at this 1964 event is a guy by the name of Jay Sebring, who at the time was a very famous celebrity hairstylist, probably most famous for his relationship with Sharon Tate, whom he was dating at the time. They remained friends even after they broke up and he would be murdered while trying to defend Sharon by the Manson family in 1969. But Jay was something of a martial arts aficionado and a very early martial arts aficionado, I should think. Mm -hmm. And he was incredibly taken with Bruce Lee and actually uh, started to work with him. And he obtained a demonstration tape that Bruce had made. And he was so impressed with this that he gave it to his friend, a TV producer named William Dozier. Yeah, and so Dozier, I think, gets Lee to audition for a pilot that is filmed but not picked up. But he also happens to narrate the Green Hornet TV series. And so Lee is cast as Cato for all 26 episodes of that show's paltry one-season run. And that breaks him to U.S. audiences. But it doesn't only break him to U.S. audiences. It essentially breaks 
authentic Chinese martial arts to Western audiences. This is in 64. So you think about the whole history of Westerns and it is just this ungodly clumsy. <laughs> lumbering like around like gorillas. Yeah, like toddlers throwing yeah. these big haymakers and wrestling around in the mud. And producers wanted Lee to fight like that in the show. And he wisely was like, no, <laughs> I will not. So this is the first exposure American audiences really had to this style of fighting. And my favorite thing about this is that he was moving too fast for the cameras when he first started doing this. And they were like, of course they were like, you, you got to slow it down, man. And so he did, he had to run all of his stuff slower than, than he actually could so that it wouldn't just be filmed as an unrecognizable blur. It's just amazing to me. Uh, they also appear on um, episodes of Batman, which is great. Um, there's a Batman oh, yeah, Hornet crossover. That, right? Yep. And so based on this kind of stuff, a couple other bit parts, he's in Ironsides, that a detective in a wheelchair show. He's got different stuff popping up here and there. And he's also teaching. Two of his students are this writer Sterling Siliphant and the actors James Coburn and Steve McQueen. And so he's getting these bit parts. And crucially to this next part we're going to talk about, in 1969, he is credited as the karate advisor in The Wrecking Crew which is the fourth installment of a comedy sci-fi film starring Dean Martin. Which also went on to influence the Austin Powers series. Uh, but yeah, Bruce Lee was tight with a lot of A-listers. Um, speaking of Dino and the Rat Pack, Bruce supposedly once kicked a door off its hinges to impress Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Hell which, yes. Which I love. I, it, it, this is the rumor that went around Hollywood. It's, I'm not totally sure if it's true, but the story went around and made him extremely popular. He turned McQueen on to various martial arts. McQueen turned him on to marijuana, which morphed <laughs> into a chewable Nepalese hash, which he became sure. very fond of. I guess traces of that were found in his stomach at his autopsy. And for a while, the authorities were like, maybe that killed him. So, yeah. yeah. That's not how that works. <laughs> um, after Bruce's death, pallbearers at his funeral included McQueen, who wore a denim jacket over his black tie. <laughs> looking if He looks like he's doing a Levi's ad with Bruce Lee's coffin on his shoulder. The pictures from it are insane. Uh, other very famous pallbearers at Bruce Lee's funeral include James Coburn and the one-time James Bond, George Lazenby, who was in 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That's so cute that they had a relationship. Um, this is now getting into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood territory, which I'm going to try not to get too furious at, but it's a big digression, and I think it's just crazy, so it's just fun to talk about. Rowan Polanski and Sharon Tate both studied with Lee. I think Lee was making something like $1,000 an hour to teach Roman Polanski martial arts, and Roman would uh, fly him to Switzerland to train. And uh, Tate studies with him in preparation for her role in The Wrecking Crew, which is the movie she goes to see herself in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, after she gets murdered by the Manson family, Polanski initially suspected that Lee did it, A, because he was the most dangerous person that Polanski knew at the time, and B, because they found a pair of glasses at the scene of the murder. And during a lesson with him months later, Bruce offhandedly mentions that he lost his glasses. So Roman Polanski conducts this ham-handed PI-esque scheme. He goes, oh, Bruce, um, why don't I get to my optician and we'll get you fitted for some new ones? He thinks craftily. And uh, stroking his, his yeah. non-existent beard, and so he goes to the they go to the optician, and Bruce reads off his prescription to um, the guy, and uh, Polanski goes ah foiled again. I don't know because uh, it didn't match yes, the did, it didn't yes. match the prescription found at the crime scene. And unsurprisingly, you have quite a bit to say about these glasses. <laughs> yeah, I one of my obsessions, you know, there's the Titanic, there's the Beatles, uh, there's James Bond, and there's also the Manson murder. I, uh, and so, please shut me up <laughs> if I start rambling a little too much. But uh, yeah, Roman kind of understandably drove himself insane in the wake of Sharon's death, and he did a great deal of this amateur sleuthing. He'd had an affair with Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, hmm. who at that time was still married to John Phillips, also of the Mamas and the Papas. And so Roman thought for a long time that John Phillips was behind Sharon's murder, sort of as revenge for this affair, because it had been found out. So one day he sneaks into John Phillips's garage and dusts his Rolls Royce with some solution that he'd obtained from the cops that reacted to traces of blood. So he's trying to see if there are any, you know, any evidence that could be found on John Phillips's car. Obviously, he found nothing. 
He also studied the handwriting of his friends to see if any of their writing matched the word pig that had been scrawled mm-hmm. on his front door uh, in Sharon's blood. Um, and an interesting note about these glasses that were found at the crime scene, no one to this day really knows why they're there. Like, it was really mm. this kind of outlier in all the evidence that was gathered at uh, at the Polanski house. Just these big, horn-rimmed glasses didn't belong to any of the known killers who were there. And there's a theory that's been taking hold in recent years that— because. Charles Manson didn't actually officially go to the crime scene. He ordered his followers to go up there and sort of do his his biddings for him. But there's this theory that he, hours after the murders, uh, went up there with another member of the family to basically survey the crime scene and stage it to his liking, to just sort of arrange the scene with the bodies. Because I guess hours and hours and hours after the killers left, uh, people in the area, neighbors, heard two men arguing. And if they look at the blood trace map at the property, it looks like the bodies have been dragged around and moved. So there's this theory that Manson went up there and possibly deposited these glasses Hmm. just to throw off the authorities, to just leave this random clue that didn't actually fit to try to just throw people off. Uh, Yeah, to this day, no one actually knows why they're there, Hmm. which is very interesting to me. Uh, Going back to Bruce Lee, he apparently made a point of wearing these old taped up Coke bottle glasses as a way of reminding himself of where he came from and to stay grounded. I love that. So by 1970, he's choreographing the fights in an Ingrid Bergman movie, which I love because there's no degree of separation between Ingrid Bergman and Bruce Lee. Um, But that year, he damages a sacral nerve in his lower back uh, weightlifting. He's laid up for a few months in bed, which is uh, when you mentioned he wrote his book. And um, money was so tight at this point because he couldn't work that uh, Linda actually starts moonlighting at an answering service, pulling double duties to make ends meet for their family. I love their relationship so much yeah their love just sustains me the pictures of bruce and his wife linda together are just some of the most pure images of coupledom that i've ever seen i know it sounds like he's had a number of affairs uh (laughs) i will choose to ignore them there's this famous quote of his i don't know if it's from a movie or from his notebooks of poetry that he wrote but i always thought it was really beautiful love is like a friendship caught on fire in the beginning of flame very pretty often hot and fierce but still only light and flickering. As love grows older, our hearts mature, and our love becomes as coals, deep burning and unquenchable. This guy can do it all. Uh, this guy yeah, that's beautiful. has such a beautiful blend of spiritual and physical grace. It's amazing. And so this is the era when he decides to hit Rob decides is is influenced to move back to Hong Kong. And this is also gets into the drama around the television show Kung Fu, which starts in 1972, stars David Carradine as this sort of Clint Eastwood-esque wandering martial artist. And the drama is that in 1971, Bruce pitched a TV show with the title The Warrior. That has been confirmed by Warner Brothers that they took this meeting. Uh, And then in his lone English-speaking TV interview, which is in Canada on the Pierre Burton show, he talks about pitching this show and he says that Their vision for him was to be in a modernized type of thing because they think the Western is out. But then he says, whereas I wanted to do a Western. Now, according to Linda, this is the idea that does become Kung Fu and he got screwed out of a credit. Warner Brothers' excuses that they had for some time been developing the same idea and they were just like, oh, you know, synchronicity. Oh, and they also said that he was not cast in Kung Fu regardless of who developed the idea because his accent was too thick or just because of good old-fashioned American racism. But he was admirably pragmatic about the circumstances of this, telling Pierre Burton that uh, they think that business-wise it is a risk. He says, "I, I don't blame them. If the situation were reversed and an American star were to come to Hong Kong and I was the man with the money, I would have my own concerns as to whether or not the acceptance would be there. So that's enlightened of him. I'd be pissed as hell. Especially after I see David Carradine sleepwalking his way through all of those fight scenes. (laughs) So then a guy named Fred Weintraub, who's the original owner and host at The Bitter End in Greenwich Village, New York, uh, and who helped fund the Woodstock documentary, um, he is involved in developing Kung Fu, and he gives Bruce the advice that, hey, you should go over to Hong Kong, make some movies, and then come back with those on your resume, on your CV into Hollywood. That sounds suspicious to me. Like, hey, uh, we, we, we 
we stole your idea. Why don't you go to leave the country yeah. and uh, and come back while we make it? That, yeah. yeah. But the cool thing is that unbeknownst to Lee at this point, the Green Hornet has become a huge hit in Hong Kong. It is renamed the Cato Show and made him an enormous celebrity. Uh, Weintraub said in 2013 that you just couldn't walk the streets of Hong Kong without having 500 with Bruce without having 500 people follow you. So next. Without getting too granular about the history of Hong Kong martial arts cinema, he said, proceeding to do just that, the two <laughs> big players from this era are the Shaw Brothers and Raymond Chow's Golden Harvest. The Shaw Brothers are hugely influential in having Kung Fu cinema cross over into the United States and, and international. They made a thousand films, and you will recognize some wow. of these titles, stuff like The Five Deadly Venoms and The Five Fingers of Death from just infiltrating pop culture because they were huge hits on the midnight movies, grindhouse uh, exploitation circuit. And that's where people like Quentin Tarantino and the RZA saw them. RZA has talked about coming into Staten Island to see all of these Kung Fu movies in Times Square. And the Wu-Tang record, Enter the 36 Chambers, takes its title from a Shaw Brothers film. They obviously have all those little bits of dialogue, sampling the film that are interspersed into their songs. Just a hugely influential thing for him. And in Kill Bill, not the first or last time I'll be bringing this up, in Kill Bill... Pai Mei, the guy with the tremendous eyebrows and white beard who trains Uma, that is Gordon Liu, who is a big uh, Shaw Brothers star, who is actually in the 36th Chamber movie. Pivoting over to Golden Harvest, Raymond Chow, who was a martial artist, launched basically every big star in the last 50 years of Kung Fu cinema, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Donnie Yen. And the rivalry between those two studios is like Disney grade, um, because <laughs> Golden Harvest was founded by Raymond Chow and a guy named Leonard Ho, who had both been executives with the Shaw Brothers, and they defected. And they wanted to have a studio that was going to be the opposite of the Shaw Brothers, which was this assembly line, really quality controlled, bang them out system. And so they basically said, we're going to pay people more and give them more creative freedom. And that was how they were going to run their studio. So Bruce asks a childhood friend of his who he had co-starred in these films alongside with, with the absolutely remarkable name of Unicorn Chan, <laughs> to pass his CV to the Shaws. And they are interested, but they lowball him. They offer him a long-term contract at something like two grand a film. And considering he'd been making $1,000 an hour to teach karate, <laughs> two grand a film is pennies. And he declines. Chow hears of this meeting and decides to take a meeting with Bruce and offers him a two-picture deal, the first of which is The Big Boss. Uh, Lee did not enjoy making The Big Boss. It was filmed in Thailand, and he wrote to Linda complaining the food was terrible, he was losing weight, he lost his voice, trying to shout above the noise that was on the set. Uh, there were mosquitoes and cockroaches everywhere. The tap water in the hotel was yellow. He injures oh. himself badly making this he cuts his hand you can see like a plaster bandage on it he sprains his ankle that's why he's like limping half dead by the last scene um and he loses his contact lens at one point <laughs> which holds up the scene for hours <laughs> the sight of bruce lee screaming nobody move <laughs> like on the balls of his feet like feeling <laughs> around didn't he also get bitten by a cobra while filming a scene for that i believe it <laughs> I, I love that how, by all accounts, whenever he got injured, you know, in the middle of a take, he insisted that the crew not stop filming until the scene was completed. And it was only after that that he would seek medical attention. Guy's a pro. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of behind the scenes drama in this movie. They started shooting it with a three page script, which gave him a lot of leeway to kind of bully his way through the film. He clashed with the first director over the choreography. To understand about what was happening at this time, you have to know a little bit about a subgenre of martial arts movies called wuja. This was really popular at the time. This was big Shaw Brothers stuff. There are movies that take place in Chinese antiquity, often starring lightly fictionalized versions of real life, historical, military, folk heroes, and all the choreography in them is very fanciful, and it's where you get the wire work. It's where you get people doing like crazy backflips and flying through air. Um, very flowing and artsy fight scenes. The biggest example of this for Western nonsense is, is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, that looked so alien to us, having people like mm. do these balletic fight scenes 50 feet up in the air. But that would have been very standard for Chinese movie-going audiences because of the history of this genre. Now, those are the fight scenes that this director, Wu Chia Xiang, wanted 
Bruce, who, as you remember, beat half of Hong Kong to death with his bare hands, wanted these street fight style scenes that would be more realistic, brutal, direct, realistic. Uh, They fought. Each one of them wanted the other one fired, and Golden Harvest crunched the numbers, decided they had just paid Lee more, more recently, and fired the director. He also clashes with the film's build star, James Tien, who was a bigger deal than Lee at the time. But Lee kind of edges him out during the production and writing process, probably because people just looked at the dailies and were like, oh, this is what we, oh, this is what we have on our Film that. Yeah. Point the camera at that. Yeah. And lastly, the Shaw brothers were also making a movie in Thailand and apparently still going around behind Golden Harvest's back trying to sign Lee to a new contract. But. Whatever the drama, the film is a huge hit when it comes out. It grosses an adjusted 300 million worldwide on a budget of a hundred grand. Talk about an ROI. It is the highest grossing Hong Kong film up until Lee's next film, Fist of Fury. And uh, this might have been why he decided to form his own production company. Um, There's a book written by a guy who worked with him on Enter the Dragon and Way of the Dragon that he said Bruce told him that Chow only gave him 5% of the profits from those two films, which it made almost like half a billion dollars and he got 5% of them. So we get to Fist of Fury. The plot of this movie is fairly straightforward and one that is familiar to any martial arts movie fan. Lee is playing a guy named Chen Zhen, and his teacher has died under mysterious circumstances, and he goes to Japan to investigate. Pretty simple setup with a lot of subtext. Chen's teacher in the film shares a name with a real-life figure named Huo Yanjia, who dates back to the Qing dynasty in China and is something of a real-life folk hero in China. He was seen as defending the Chinese national identity and being very proud of this identity at a time when it was under threat from influences from Europe and Japan. So, consequently, in this movie, the Japanese are portrayed as extremely villainous. The Japanese villains use this term, sick man of Asia, to refer to the Chinese. I wikied this. It has a long, yes, it does. deep history of use as an insult in Asia. I'm not getting into it. I'm sure I will say something wrong, but it is very insulting. So that was written in on purpose. And there's also a point where Bruce kicks apart a sign that says no Chinese or dogs allowed. So the plot of this movie about this honorable pacifistic man being forced into violence and conducting a one-man war against a foreign enemy that he did not want to fight. Very pointed for the Chinese. And especially for Lee. Very quick history lesson. The Japanese invasion of a bunch of territories, including Hong Kong, starts in December of 1941, concurrently with Pearl Harbor, right? Lee's dad was nearly killed when he was at a buddy's house, and it was bombed as part of the occupation. So Lee's dad nearly died. And Linda tells the story of Lee as a little kid, like, sitting out and watching the Japanese planes flying overhead and shaking his fist at them, which is uh, tragic and adorable. Um, So this is all all this anti-colonialism, pro-Chinese nationalism sentiment, defending against the Japanese. This is really kind of transcends the genre, deeply personal stuff for him. And this particular strain of nationalism found a fan in another big... Uh, a figure in Chinese history, Chairman Mao. <laughs> Chairman Mao, everyone, making his first appearance on the podcast. <laughs> friend of the pod, <laughs> friend, of, friend the pod. of the pod, Chairman Mao. <laughs> so by 1974, Mao has been diagnosed with a cataract, and Lee is dead at this point. Mao had nothing to do with that, by the way. Yeah. Despite the many people he killed, not this one. <laughs> That's just to cover our bases there. <laughs> he is diagnosed with a cataract, and his doctors say, you got to quit reading so much. So he turns to movies. He goes through a couple of foreign biopics of figures like Abe Lincoln and Napoleon. And then his deputy minister of the Ministry of Culture, Liu Qingtang, gets him a bunch of Hong Kong kung fu flicks. And Lee was a really unknown quantity in China because of the country's self-imposed cultural isolation. So this was the first time that Chairman Mao was seeing any of these. And he burst into tears watching Fist of Fury for the first time and cried Bruce Lee as a hero and then watched it two more times, a personal record for his film viewing (laughs) that uh, Lou said stood for the rest of his life. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Random bits about the film. This is the first one in which his iconic nunchuck routine makes an appearance. Uh, he had used them on the Green Hornet before, but this is the first time when the film just grinds to a halt to watch Bruce Lee whip around <laughs> nunchucks faster than the speed of sound. Also, supposedly, I guess production had to contend with local street gangs demanding payment for using their their territory. Yeah. Um, and as the path of least resistance, the producers paid up, although Lee was predictably very upset about this and wanted to fight all of them, <laughs> presumably at once. And could he have taken uh, them? Probably. Yeah. Did you know that for his total lack of fear of human beings, as evidenced by this anecdote, Bruce Lee was terrified of swimming pools? I sure didn't. You did not? I guess when he was a little boy, he pushed his younger sister into the pool, and she retaliated by holding his head underwater. <laughs> and it traumatized him so much that he never set foot in the pool again. That's wild. <laughs> and now we are so thrilled to speak about one of your heroes. You mentioned him mm -hmm. at the top of the episode. Jackie Chan, who, I mean, I know through conversations we've had, you've likened to Charlie Chaplin and Buster yeah, he, Keaton. He's he's them plus Bruce Lee. I mean, yeah. he, it's, it's funny because they, I'll talk about this in a few minutes, but he was basically explicitly positioned as Bruce Lee's heir. Mm -hmm. Um but the crucial difference between them is that Jackie was schooled at a like a performing arts school that really pushed for comedy and like and singing, right? Yep, he's a singer and stage comedy. And so even though all of his early films he's playing this very straight-laced like just sort of Bruce Lee-esque badass, he quickly figures out that like, oh, I am also a tremendously gifted physical comedian. And that's when you just get that tremendous run of 80s stuff like armor of god and super cop all this stuff where it's just yeah man i mean he would beat the shit out of someone with a ladder and then like hurl himself down a pole covered with light bulbs popping them on the way it's just like what more uh, come on man talk about flop sweat that man broke his body to <laughs> to give us joy 
Anyway, but he's in, he's also in End of the Dragon. He tells this really funny anecdote about he like took a punch from Bruce Lee and, and he would overplay how much it hurt him because then Bruce would go over and comfort him and talk to him. And Jackie says he just liked being held by him. <laughs> you mentioned that in Jackie Chan's autobiography, he saw an actual fight on the set. Well, an almost set, I guess. Uh, Almost fight. Yeah, so in his autobiography, Jackie Chan's autobiography, he talks about the tension between Bruce and Logan so bad that they almost blossomed into a fight, and he mentions the incredibly emasculating detail that the director hid behind his wife, (laughs) using her as a human shield between himself and the deadliest man of all time. (laughs) And this woman calmly down and broke up the fight. Oh, that guy sounds like a piece of <laughs> I'm being chased by a man who could punch faster than the speed of sound. Where is my wife? <laughs> to throw, like, was his child not on hand? Could he not just <laughs> hold his baby up in front of him? Good Lord. This thing was filmed in six weeks. Wow. That's how he was able to make like four of these in the two years he was an international celebrity before he died because they just cranked these things out. Spoilers. The film ends with a very Butch and Sundance, Heart of They Come, Vanishing Point ending where there's a freeze frame where he launches into this flying kick at a row of armed policemen and military. And there's a sound of gunfire, the implication, of course, that he has died. And this was a point that Lo Wei and Bruce wanted to make about him sort of honorably paying for sinking to the Japanese level in this. I mean, someone I was reading about this, someone was like, he's basically a serial killer in this movie. <laughs> he just like goes around just murdering people. So they, they had to end this with this kind of morality play where he uh, and Lowe says this to him. The Lowe is playing the police inspector in this film. And he says to uphold your master's honor, which you have tainted with this international killing spree you have gone on to you have to surrender you have to give yourself up and to have their cake and eat it too they had him sort of give himself up via a flying kick anyway that's all just very funny niche chinese cultural stuff to me that's interesting um fist of fury opens in march of 1972 goes on to smash the record set by big boss it grossed an estimated 100 million worldwide, which is the equivalent to over 600 million adjusted for inflation. And this is against the budget of $100,000. <laughs> That's just, it's like that. And I think the most famous ones of this are stuff like this and Halloween. Halloween was made for pennies and when it was the most profitable independent film of all time, I think until Blair Witch. Until Blair Witch, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in the Philippines... Which Ringo famously hated. (laughs) Um, One of our bits. So the Philippines were also occupied by the Japanese, so they readily identified with this film's themes. It ran for six months of sellout theaters until the Philippine government yanked it from theaters so that domestic productions could have a fighting chance. On opening night, the rush to get to this movie caused a traffic jam that shut down the city. Incredible. Such is the power of Bruce. And this is also so cool to me. Again, because of the same themes, this film became hugely popular in Australia among the indigenous peoples of that country. Because, of course, they can emphasize with a foreign occupying force coming in and marginalizing the shit out of them. So, just last year, Fist of Fury became the first ever movie to be dubbed into Noongar Da, which is the indigenous language of peoples from the southwest corner of Western Australian. Rapidly disappearing dialect, and because of this movie's importance and historical resonance for these people, they decided to make it the first one that would be dubbed into that dialect. That fucking whips. This movie casts a very long shadow in martial arts cinema. I mentioned Jackie Chan got his start as what they called the Bruce exploitation genre, where after his sudden death, they just flooded the zone with a bunch of copycats just to try and fool foreign audiences. And it's so funny because the star guys, starring guys' names like Bruce Lee L.I. and Bruce Lee L.E., just to try and trick people. And Jackie Chan's first starring role is a movie called New Fist of Fury. Very similar. And this is where it's interesting about this character, Chan Zen, that Bruce plays in Fist of Fury. This character becomes such a resonant uh, folk hero in Chinese cinema that they just decide to take this character and start remaking these movies or dropping him into new situations. This is not without precedent. 
there is a famous historical martial artist named Wong Fei Hung. Uh, who has been the subject of 120 separate martial arts films in which he is portrayed as different actors and just kind of placed into these new scenarios and settings. There's one guy named Quan Tak Hing who starred as Wong in over 70 separate movies, which is that a record for someone playing the the same character the most amount of times? Oh, it has to. Well, non-animated yeah. Edition, definitely. Yeah, I, I would have to think so. So that character has been in many TV shows. This is such a fascinating aspect of the culture to me because they're almost like cover songs in the way that they Ooh, take yeah. certain elements of this character and remix them and rearrange them. Like Jet Li and Donnie Yen, in both of their versions, they're wearing sort of tributes, similar shirts to what they call the Mao suit that Bruce is wearing in the film. I, I don't know. I think that's interesting. And to American audiences, two of the biggest video game franchises, fighting game franchises of all time, have distinct Bruce Lee ripoffs in them. Liu Kang in Mortal Kombat, the noises he makes, everything directly related to Bruce. And in Tekken, uh, there's a character named Martial Law, which is a great pun, who's just Bruce Lee. His move set is all motion cap of Bruce Lee moves. All of his like skins, the costumes the character has in the game are all different stuff that bruce lee wore in movies he makes all the same noises it's just incredible and of course now we must come to quentin tarantino (sighs) did his hero dirty yeah well you know before once upon a time in hollywood the kill bill series is just this love letter to the shaw brothers golden harvest era of cinema and there are so many specific nods to bruce in there we mentioned the one inch punch which becomes a crucial plot point. The yellow jumpsuit that Uma Thurman is wearing at the end of the first film is a rip off the one that uh, Bruce is wearing in Game of Death, which is his famously unfinished movie, uh, which you may have seen where he's fighting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the one clip. Um, and that's the one where they have Bruce Lee's character fake his own death so they could include actual footage of the real Bruce Lee's open casket funeral. Yeah. The Bruce-ploitation is real. It got to that level. That, that ain't great. And uh, I just thought of something else just off the fly. When she's approaching the Crazy 88's headquarters on the motorcycle, they are playing Al Hirsch's... The Hornet. Fly to the Bumblebee, the theme okay. song to the f***ing Green Hornet. Yeah. Then, wow. the final fight in that movie, where she fights Lucy Liu on the rooftop of that bar. Beautiful, beautiful scene. It's snowing... And I was just rewatching scenes from Fist of Fury last night, and I had this Proustian sense memory because they're in this beautiful Zen garden set, and you hear this sound effect in the background, which is this it's like a common thing, in, or maybe it's not common. I don't know. It's in Japanese, like Zen gardens. It's this mechanism you put in a waterfall, and it slowly fills up with water and then releases all of it when it gets to a certain point. I guess it's to control the flow or the levels of the water, whatever. The Lucy Liu Uma fight is in that same set from Fist of Fury with that same water fountain thing making the same noises in crucial pauses during the fight scene. The only difference is that it's snowing. I, it's just, <laughs> it baffles me, man. And just a very quick sidebar about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, Lee was not a saint. His son Brandon and Linda have both talked about him being very quick to temper and obviously just wanted to fight the entire world at various points in his life. And so it's understandable why he would be a convenient plot point for that movie, because he was in the intersection of all of those scenes. But to reduce him to this like arrogant buffoon who loses a fight. Yeah, talk more about what the scene is. in, in Right, so the scene is famously a flashback that... Um, Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, is having to when he lost his job as a stuntman on a film. He's backstage shooting the shit, and Bruce Lee shows up because Bruce Lee has been in this Hollywood circle at this time. And they have like a little impromptu fight, which it must be said is one of the funnier parts of the movie because yeah. when they square off and Lee's doing the Wah! and Brad Pitt just goes, ah. so that is funny but you know it's just they make him lose he gets thrown into a car and dented the car and dents the car and i think it's the stunt coordinator's car and that's why cliff gets fired but you know it just he's played as a bad look yeah and it pissed 
everyone off, <laughs> at least Bruce Lee fans, I'll just say it, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was so moved to anger by it that he wrote an open letter to Quentin Tarantino in, tight. I think, Hollywood or Reporter or um, Variety, decrying that depiction. So, you know, I think it's so grating to me because I don't give a that he wants to do these this later period thing of his where he just goes into historical eras and rewrites history. You want to get Hitler machine gunned? Fine. Rules. <laughs> the Manson Can't family? Cool. Yeah, you want them flamethrowered and mauled by a giant dog? Also, my other favorite line from that movie when he's like, uh, what did you say your name was again? <laughs> Max? Rex? And he's like, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. He says, no, I was, was stupider than, than that. that. Yeah, I was a lot dumber than that. <laughs> Yeah, you want to get them mauled to death by pit bulls? Fine. Rules. But don't go into someone's actual life who you have already pillaged and looted for your own art and make him into a cartoon. Don't do that, man. Anyway, the reason that Fist of Fury is interesting to me is this is the kind of last stop of Bruce as a regional genre icon and into an international star. You know... Enter the Dragon, it's based on the tremendous success of these two movies that Warner Brothers approaches him after he's formed his own production company to make Enter the Dragon, which is a joint production between Lee's production company, I think Golden Harvest, and Warner Brothers. And that is the movie that it's ground zero for the Kung Fu craze in the States in the 70s, like Kung Fu fighting all of the black exploitation stuff that tips into kung fu crazes. Fun fact: Did you know that nunchucks were outlawed in uh, New York City around this time because gang members were carrying them and beating the shit out of people with nunchucks? So you can't have nunchucks in New York because of the directly related to Bruce Lee and the kung fu movie craze. I did not know that. Yeah, and so by some estimation, I mean, End of the Dragon is bar none the most famous martial arts movie of all time. And it's truly cool because it is a truly international production. Uh, it has John Saxon, who would go on to be in, I think, Nightmare on Elm Street, a bunch of other genre stuff. John Saxon is in there. Um, Jim Kelly, who becomes a black exploitation star, is in that movie. It's got that tremendous Lalo Schifrin soundtrack. It is so f***ing cool. And that movie has grossed what they think is an adjusted two billion dollars off a budget of 850,000. So if nothing else, Lee has financial ROI records for movie making that are just bananas. Yeah, man. And that's when he becomes an icon and uh, this larger than life figure. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest, he's a goat, you know, the greatest of all time, man. What else do you say about Bruce? Um, all right. I talked about that for 10 minutes straight. <laughs> uninterrupted monologue. Did you want to weigh in on anything about the 70s, the Kung Fu exploitation? Does that edge into your sense of mm, awareness? Not really. Okay. The closest that I get to the 70s martial arts craze, aside from Elvis, which mm. I want to save for our... Um, Graceland. Yes, our Baz Luhrmann-centric piece on Elvis and his Graceland home. But other than that, it really only extends to, like, everybody was Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> yeah. So you are far more of an expert on this than I am. I mean, you know, what else do you say about someone? He, he is like Clint Eastwood, you know, in just being this genre influence. I don't even know who the corollary would be for horror. Somebody like Christopher Lee. Just bringing these genre films across borders and making them these enormous, enormous successes with all of these resonances and culture, every aspect of culture. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I'm not going to talk anymore. I feel like I've I'm literally going hoarse with my love of Bruce Lee. <laughs> so I would just say, even if you don't feel like you want to do the full length thing, just go to YouTube and poke around, look at some Bruce Lee stuff. And I hope we've been able to make the case for his enduring legacy. And yeah, man, have fun looking him up. It's cool stuff. He's a tremendous guy. Yeah, I have zero background in martial arts whatsoever, but even someone like me is able to appreciate the incredible grace and power and artistry of this man and also his wisdom mm -hmm. i mean we mentioned this earlier his writings are so fascinating and beautiful and poetic and insightful there was a book published posthumously in 1975 that was nominally his philosophy on his fighting technique but really it touches on all aspects of life i mean wow such a fascinating polymath with really pretty stunning insights mm -hmm. on just how to live, you yeah. know? 
Well, he did a lot in those 32 yeah. years. Yeah, he did. Um, That's right. Bruce Lee was younger than we are. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I just got one inch punched. <laughs> Well, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.